All righty. Give us a little countdown. Two, one. Actually, you know, the first thing I really wanted to say to you was um, I wanted to send my condolences because Serbia crashed out of the World Cup pretty uh, pretty early on. I actually had them at least making the quarterfinals. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they were one of the biggest disappointments of the tournament. I don't know if, if you've been watching it at all, but. I have. I woke up at 4 a.m. to watch the Cameroon game, which was which was a very good game, but uh, yeah. Score. Um, yeah, no, after Serbia crashed out, then I switched to Croatia because uh, <laughs> we're from there and they done pretty well. Uh, and then I switched to France because my sister lives in Paris um, mm. and done really well, but lost the news. So, but you know, I, so. I, I feel that I, uh, many, all of my teams basically crashed out pretty early, obviously with the United States crashing out of the round of 16. Germany got grouped, quite unfortunate there. England. Didn't they get to the quarter, you know, they like knocked out by France. So, um, you know, all my teams were knocked out, but I guess it's at the end, Messi did win it. So that's really cool. It's really capping off his career. So what more can you really ask for? Yeah. And that final games, that was the way it's yeah. the game to be played. This was just incredible. And by the end of it, there's just like, there's so many goals and so much excitement that you kind of like, so drained. You can't even be upset if your team lost. Yeah. Well, I guess it's okay. <laughs> were you were you at home or were you like were you out somewhere watching it? No, I was at home. Yeah. Uh, so I was with my kids, and so I was like, uh, I was. Yeah, I, I, we were. Uh, I was out um, at a friend's house, and man, like that World Cup final, it might have easily the best World Cup final. Might have been the greatest like football match I've ever seen, and might have been the greatest like sports match I've ever seen in my entire life. No, I have an obvious bias to soccer, but like, yeah. it was that good. No, especially since some of these games are just like you know, pretty boring because the stakes are so high. So, but it's really cautious. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of world finals ago, I think when like, Italy and France played, this was just like yeah, two thousand six, boring. Yeah, and this was this was not boring. Well, the best the best moment of that World Cup was when Zidane headbutt the Italian defender. He got red carded. That was like the moment of the game. <laughs> yeah yeah which is like you know not actually soccer <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but anyway yeah today uh really excited to have on professor ognen milianic did i pronounce that correctly ognen sure. milianic um yugoslavian born and uh university professor here at university of houston so how are you doing professor milianic welcome to the show thank you for inviting me mm. yeah um i guess we'll start um, if you want to introduce yourself a little bit, talk about your uh, your background, um, and hopefully the enga- the audience can engage with that a little bit. Yeah. So I, you know, I was, uh, as you mentioned, I was born in Yugoslavia, uh, which is a country that that is no more uh, uh, in the in the late seventies. Uh, and you know, the, my my parents met in college, uh, and uh, you know, I was growing up in Belgrade, which is uh, you know, it's a big city. Even then, back then, was a big city, but. Uh, it was sort of very, kind of very sheltered upbringing. It was sort of, we would really, uh, it's going to sound a little, well, sort of romanticized, but we would just go out and play between these apartment buildings for a whole day during the summer and just kind of find our way home back, uh, back in the evening when we get mm-hmm. hungry. Um, uh, and uh, and that's where I, you know, then when did all my schooling, uh, I, I went to college there in the University of Belgrade. Uh, studied chemistry um and then in the year 2000 at the very end of 2000 i moved to california to study um 
uh, to do my PhD at, at Berkeley. Uh, and uh, and this was, you know, uh, this year, I guess sort of marked, marked half of my life being in the United States. Uh, so I spent, after 2000, I spent the next eight years in California doing a PhD and a postdoc, and then came to, to UH, to Texas, to take up what was my first real job uh, yeah. in 2008. That's where we met. Yeah. One day at a time. Um, yeah, I definitely, we were, we were, we were discussing a little bit beforehand because um, we were mentioning, we were talking about Yugoslavia. And I definitely wanted to ask you a few questions about that because, um, I mean, the fall of World War II and that, is it the, what's right there? The Mediterranean, no, the Baltic Sea. What's the sea that's right there? Oh, man. It's the Adriatic Sea. Which Adriatic the, Sea. It's kind of like a really big bay of the, of the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of... Uh, uh, there's a lot of Mediterranean culture in the coastal places, but then it kind of drops off very quickly as you go inland. And so it's replaced by, you know, Austrian and Hungarian and Turkish influences, as well as, you know, a lot of Slavic culture, of course. Mm-hmm. In general, though, at least at least from the at least from my perspective and growing up in the United States, you don't really learn about the Yugoslavian history and like the Adriatic Sea, like the whole, you know, Croatia, Serbia, Kosovo um hungary that area like it's not really taught that well so i i wanted to ask you i know i kind of wanted to ask you about the you know growing up in yugoslavia then yugoslavia um now it's like six different countries but what it was like growing up in that area in that time because from my brief look into that history it was a, a communist regime i'm not really exactly sure the fall of world war ii so i don't know if you want to uh-huh. so um well, first, if it makes you feel any better, when we studied history in, in, in Yugoslavia, the, the whole U.S. history was was one week, right? So <laughs> the enough. war independence, civil war, sec- Pearl Harbor, everything, all that was just two class <laughs> periods. And of all the U.S. writers, we only studied, for some reason, Mark Twain and, and Faulkner. So okay. <laughs> you know, there are lots of on all sides. Uh, but, you know, Yugoslavia is sort of an interesting country. It was sort of um, uh, constructed after the two big empires uh, lost the the First World War, the, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which completely mm. sort of disappeared, and the Turkish Ottoman Empire, which really was really severely cut down to push sides after that. And then mm. from really the, the, the Serbia, which was in Montenegro, which were independent countries at the time, but very small, um, and the remnants of Austro-Hungarian Empire, the southern parts of it, and Turkey, this this country was was put together and um, and it was you know done at an international agreement in, in Paris uh, and the country was sort of different from most European countries in that it was by design sort of multi-ethnic you know, most of the European countries were sort of nation nation states hmm. with one dominant culture one dominant nationality ethnicity uh, and this one wasn't and they had um, uh, at least three dominant uh, ethnicities, which were Serbians, Croatians, and, and, and Slovenians, but many others. Um, and that was, um, you know, going along pretty well. Uh, the, the country after the Second World War, or during the Second World War, sort of switched from monarchy to, uh, to a communist regime. Uh, but then very quickly, uh, you, shortly after the Second World War, it, uh, it very quickly distanced itself from the Soviet Union. So it was sort of this soft socialism uh, that uh, really most of the things that you hear about Soviet Union completely do not apply to former Yugoslavia. So they mm. were, it was, you know, people could travel easily. They could travel to the West. 
Western tourists and, and you know, my dad studied in the United States mm-hmm. and Soviet Union. So this was sort of open to all sides. Uh, and he had very strong relationships with countries that intentionally refused to be part of either the Eastern, either the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc. And so, um, so uh, former Yugoslavia had a very strong relationship with a lot of African countries, mm-hmm. uh, with India, Egypt, uh, sort of places that really didn't want to pick sides in the Cold War. Um, and so that was sort of uh, something that you know I sort of experienced during my uh, my uh, uh, childhood and and, and, and adulthood. Uh, where and it's 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 quite an interesting relationship to to the United States that you know. Um, we all, University of Belgrade always had a lot of African students studying, mm. uh, but they mm. were almost always really wealthy Africans. Yeah, that their parents had you know money to send over to to Europe to study, and so it was just kind of um, uh, it was it's sort of a, a pretty unusual, but not very foreign, uh, you know, compared to, to the United States at the time. Sure. Um, but then, you know, during the 90s, which was really sort of my coming of age, I mean, I was born in 1978, so in the early 90s, I had, you know, you know teenager. Quite a time. Um, uh, yeah, so this country, you know, started falling apart. Um, and uh, this and was, by country, you mean you, Yugoslavia, right? Like that entire... Yugoslavia, yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think that the... That's uh, not really clear why, but uh, this sort of tensions between the... Uh, between the these different ethnicities, different religions, and, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of point of differences, but I think uh, the elites in these, uh, back then it was, there were provinces of, of Yugoslavia, now they're independent countries. Mm-hmm. So the elite started sort of emphasizing this and seeking, you know, justification for their own problems in the, in their neighbors, right? Uh, and so this eventually uh, was, uh, you know, was was pretty tragic because, Three, at least three wars, three small wars, but small wars by by very you know world standards, but you know pretty big by the standards of people living there. Um, mm. Came out of this first in uh, uh, in Croatia, then in Bosnia, and then eventually in Kosovo in 1999. Um, mm. And as the result, the country fell apart into six independent countries. Actually, depending on who you ask, uh, it's seven, right? Because uh, the last uh, the last uh, the composition was Serbia's uh, province of Kosovo breaking off into independent country, mm. which is recognized by, of course, it's not recognized by Serbia, but it is recognized by uh, by many countries in the world, including the United States. Um, and so oh. that ends up being uh, breaking a country, which, you know, to sort of give you a sense of scale, this was maybe 25 million people, former Yugoslavia. Um, mm. And now, you know, the largest country of these now is Serbia with, with seven, seven and a half million people. Wow. Now, what what were like? Do you know like what were the the tensions that wanted to the, get these independent countries? Like, was it ethnicity? Was there religious differences? Like, do you know that like like why people are just hung, power hungry and just wanted their own country? Uh, well, you know, I I wish I had an answer to that, but uh, you know what I think is that a lot of um, you know these countries they had differences, of course, uh, and. Uh, one of the main differences was religion, right? So the mm. Serbia, Macedonia, Montenegro—they're sort of Greek Orthodox. Slovenia and Croatia are dominantly Catholic, and Bosnia is mixed between mm. these two religions as well as Islam. Uh, and Kosovo is almost entirely Muslim. Um, and so this is sort of a tempting explanation, except that 
people in the part of the world are really not very religious, right? So because, you know, the sort of uh, decades of, of socialism sort of kind of suppressed these religious sentiments. Um, and so, you know, I uh, and, you know, most of my friends from elementary school have, you know, visited churches or mosques only as tourists, not really yeah. to, <laughs> to worship there. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of seems like a tempting explanation, but I don't think it's it's really true. I think one of the, you know, like a lot of these wars and this, this a strong economic background uh, that, uh, you know, this country, which uh, was, um, was put together, was very unevenly developed, right? Mm. So on the very north was Slovenia, which um, I think is, uh, is now part of the European Union. And if you go to Slovenia, it would be very difficult to distinguish it from Switzerland, mm. right? So it's just a very wealthy country, uh, yeah. you know, very strong word. I can just, you know, it was always wealthy, right? And on the very south, you know, are places like Montenegro and, and uh, Kosovo and Macedonia, which are just very poor in comparison. Um, mm. And then in the middle are sort of Serbia and Croatia, which are, uh, you know, between these two extremes. Uh, but they're the biggest in size, and they're used to be the biggest in influence. And so, what um, uh, what I think was was happening while these all these nations lived together is that the wealthier ones were were sponsoring the the poorer ones. Uh, but all the decisions were made not proportional to this, but proportional to the population. And so, a lot of decisions were coming from Serbia uh, that were influencing everybody, uh, and. Uh, most of the time, these decisions were pretty reasonable. But at some point when sort of Serbia, especially with relation to Kosovo, started sort of suppressing human rights of, of ethnic Albanians that lived there, mm. uh, then, you know, Slovenia was the first one to sort of say, well, we're not going to be part of this. We're not going to pay for this. Uh, and uh, and we're just going to leave. Uh, and that uh, then sort of started this domino reaction. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um... Um, always interested um, with world history whenever I can get it. Now, something I also wanted to ask you about that is so growing up in then Yugoslavia, but I guess I'll just you know I, I'll just say, I'll just say Serbia now. Um, yeah. Uh, what were some of the you know what were some of the biggest cultural differences you know uh, growing up in Serbia and being here being in the United States now, or I should say really. You know California and Houston because you know America is pretty big. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah, and also cultural difference, but also like education wise. So you know you did you know primary school and you and basically bachelor's degree at Belgrade, but then switching to a graduate school here. Like what were some of the major differences that you saw? Well, one of the big differences in terms of society is that you know growing up in a, in a socialist countries, all of these economic differences they're sort of very flattened out. So. Mm. Um, so you, of course, had you know wealthy people and poor people, mm. but the differential between them was nowhere. You know, it was many, many times smaller than the United States, right? And so, sort of the whole concept of working two jobs to support your family was completely foreign, and it's still, I think, pretty foreign uh, in in Serbia. Um, but back during when I was a you know, kid, you know, you could have a very, very humble job, be a janitor, and you could have a family with three kids and um, and uh, and you could support that family. Yeah. Uh, the, the reason for that is that a lot of things uh, were either heavily subsidized or completely subsidized by the state. Mm. Uh, this included uh, daycare. Um, of course, um, you know, we care about it in the US a lot. Uh, healthcare, 
all forms of education, university education, um, and and many other things. Um, and so, um, so then there was really no, uh, there was of course some, but pretty small economic obstacles uh, to just advancing yourself as much as you you wanted and, and were capable of. And so my my dad's uh, come from from Montenegro, and his parents were you know they were they had you know pretty pretty low paying jobs and mm-hmm. it's. My grandfather was a, was a locksmith, and my my grandmother worked in a tobacco factory. Um, and so they couldn't really send a child to to college if they had to pay for it. Uh, Where's your mo- Where's your grandmother from again? Montenegro. So Montenegro. The, Do they have the, the they have the, they got the soil for uh, tobacco there. I'm so. That's actually uh, no, I don't think so. I think a lot of this tobacco was grown across the border in in what was that what is now Bosnia, but back then it was the same country. Okay. Uh, and okay. it was uh, it was then processed there or something. I see. Okay. I am pretty big on the details myself. <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, so my dad, you know, he went to to college, and they they uh, so of course the the tuition was was free, uh, and mm. uh, and. Uh, then eventually he got fellowships and supported himself through that. So he eventually became a college professor. Mm. Um, but uh, from from very humble, economically very humble beginnings. And I think this is something that, you know, in the U.S. is in theory possible, but I think it's less and less common and uh, and happens to fewer and fewer people. Yeah. Definitely um, is a, lot of, a lot of people here in the United States compared to the, the population size, you know. Yeah, so this sort of uh, it was really sort of easy to um, uh, to at least you know have education and and healthcare was yeah. relatively even uh, whoever you were right. Mm. Um, so that was a big difference. Uh, now, of course, it wasn't all you know land of, of, of milk and honey. Um, so uh, you know when it came to the United States, sort of the the open mindedness uh, of people just was, was very impressive. And I, you know, in the beginning, I didn't, I wasn't very culturally shocked, but sort of in retrospect, I was just like, well, this is very different. Now we have mm. to, um, to uh, consider that I came to, to one of the most open minded places in the US, so Berkeley, California. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty. Uh, so, you know, when I first came to the US, I thought like the rest of the US is just like this. And <laughs> not, not, not quite. Um, but I think you know that that applies, you know, throughout the United States. That you know, the, the U.S. has a lot of internal divisions and a lot of you know issues with other countries in the world. And and uh, but throughout that, you know, I think uh, just on a very individual level, I, I find that an average American is a lot more open-minded about things than an average. Uh, really, I would generalize this to an average European, but especially mm. an average you know citizen of Serbia at the time when I was growing up. Mm. So how so how did you get into you know University of Belgrade? Um, I don't know. Is that like I, I assume that's the because how well, how big is Belgrade? Like how big is the the city population? Belgrade, you know, so Serbia and Belgrade are sort of very uh, very uneven. Belgrade is nowadays it's probably two million people. Okay, uh, and all Serbia is seven seven and a half. So it's you know really hmm. about almost a third of a country of the country. Yeah. And then not only that, but it's very much a centralized country right so in the u.s of course you know like this capital dc but you know a lot of stuff a lot of important stuff happens there and it's very much not centered in dc in serbia almost everything that uh that almost everything that is happening is the epicenter of that is belgrade Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially when it comes to anything that has uh, to do with government, administration, education, and so on. And so the University of Belgrade is by far the biggest and I would like to say the best university in, in Serbia. Um, uh, and it's it's very large. I think, uh, I don't know the exact numbers now, but I think at the time when I was studying there, it was 50,000 students. That's, um, a, yeah, that's, a, that's a sizable university then. Yeah. yeah it's, um, and so the, the way you would... Um, uh, also, our high schools were sort of structured dif- structured differently um, mm. because they would you would typically have uh, two tracks of high schools. One were the so-called gymnasiums, uh, which are sort of very German concept, uh, where which are high schools that are kind of giving you broad education that is really not good for very much except getting you into college. Mm. Right? Um, and uh, and then the other high schools were sort of uh, more vocational high schools uh, and. Uh, these were really for, I like to call for the kids that really know knew what they wanted to do, right? And so there was, uh, uh, you know, a very uh, this this high school was very difficult to get into, but it was for electrical engineering. Right? So if you wanted to be a, um, a programmer or you know just wanted to work in a power plant, uh, you yeah. would go to that high school, and you could still go to college, but of course your choices would be uh, would be a bit more limited because you couldn't just you know go to this high school and study you know French after that. Yeah, That'd be a, little, a little unusual. Um, and so, um, and so then after you know after high school, you you apply to uh, you would apply to an individual major. So you the, the, there were there were no majors within university. You start you have to figure out what you want to do right after high school. Mm-hmm. You apply to study that, uh, and then um, depending on your uh, entrance exam, on your uh, high school scores, and on how competitive it is, you get in or you don't get in. Um, and um, uh, studying chemistry was not very competitive, so I easily got in. <laughs> and then, but you know, the, you know, my my friends that that wanted to study things that are a lot more uh, competitive, such as law or pharmacy, mm. uh, some of them ended up studying chemistry because that was a second choice. So if you can study pharmacy, then. Um, but that was sort of the thing that was, you know, in retrospect, quite uh, actually quite difficult that you have to, at the age of eighteen, without really having, you know, done anything. You have to sort of decide what you're going to dedicate yourself, uh, and then you know it's if you think that you made a wrong decision, then it's not no such thing as switching majors. You basically start over, yeah. Right? Uh, unless you're switching to something very similar where they could you know take some of your courses, but otherwise, uh, yeah. Yeah, it definitely seems true in many parts of the world where yeah, college or bust basically feels that in, in America. I think the tides kind of change a little bit. I know a lot of my friends are going to like um vocational schools to like do um like trade jobs or trade school but yeah i mean to have everything figured out at 18 i mean just <laughs> um yeah and i think you know i think it's sort of uh i think having these trade schools is, is actually a great thing but if you mm-hmm. um if you don't know what you want to do with yourself which i think is a pretty common theme if you're teenager, 18 <laughs> uh and um and it certainly was a theme for me. Then, uh, then I think you know, getting some time for independent exploration mm. is good. And I think the U.S. system does that pretty well because um, uh, most of students here live outside of their homes once mm. they're in college. And yep. then for the first time, they really kind of really, of course, they're not completely independent, depending on who pays the bills. But you know, they kind of can make decisions with some pretty significant independence. And I yeah. think. You know, making these life decisions uh, 
really is important that you have that independence. Um, yeah. And so, yes, I definitely then, you know, agree. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was just agreeing. So I think uh, at the same time, you know, once you uh, once you sort of get into a track and then uh, and then start doing it, and then uh, year after year after year, then you sort of find um, uh, find interests and find purpose in that. Um, regardless of what your choices might have been, you know, five, 10, 20 years ago. Sure. And now was the university of Bulgaria, I assume that that's, was it more of a vocational school, not a gymnasium, right? So it was more of a specialized school at Belgrade. University of Belgrade. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. So that was, uh, then you, you, it was sort of, uh, because you, you select your major right away and then you do mm-hmm. four years of that. Then at the end of that, you're really very much an expert in, in whatever you're chosen. And so I think, at the time when you finish the the U.S. chemistry major and, and the Serbian chemistry major, I would say that the Serbian one would suddenly have more uh, more uh, more chemistry classes under the belt uh, mm. in terms of research uh, research experience and research knowledge. Um, that has to be sort of corrected for the fact that the labs are in, are in a pretty poor shape in most of Serbia. So yeah, uh, but in terms of you know just how many chemistry classes have you taken by the time you graduate. Uh, it's it's a lot more there. Yeah. Now, did you know since birth if you wanted to do chemistry, or did you like kind of grow into that? When did that start to transpire? <laughs> no, not not since not since birth. But uh, you know, I, I, uh, uh, my parents studied the physical chemistry, right? So there was some mm-hmm. influence. But although they they were very cautious not to, not to really push me in that direction. But I, um, you know, I started doing really studying this in in middle school. I was, I was sort of getting interested in that when we had our first chemistry classes and uh, uh but it was by far not my only interest hmm. so i was uh, i was also interested in in linguistics and and, and just writing uh, a lot uh, and uh, and math uh, and uh, and computers right uh, which you know nowadays like seems uh Seems customary, but you, you know, like you, you get a lot of that with chemistry. You, you know, you gotta write papers. You gotta, you know, analyze. You gotta model things. You know, <laughs> that's uh, that is a different kind of writing, though. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, uh, and so you know, I was at the end of high school. I was really torn between these three things: sort of studying writing, chemistry, and uh, and electrical engineering, or sort of programming. Sure. Uh, and uh, that's the the route I've chosen. Yeah, you flip a three-sided coin. Now, did you have it's to? Um, did you have to like, like declare chemistry, or could you like go and? Well, yeah, I guess like you mentioned, I guess you had to declare one, right? Yes, you declare yeah. one, and then you, and then this university entrance exam. It depends on which uh, uni- which field you want to study, right? So, mm. I my entrance exam was entirely chemistry, uh, and so then if I wanted to do out of one of these other things, I would have had to take another separate entrance exam. Um, and so, yeah. Now, so when you were taking like those undergraduate, um, courses at, at Belgrade, um, you know, how do you feel it's changed over time since you were being taught chemistry versus, cause now you teach, you know, organic. So how do you feel like some of the, what are some of the differences there you think? Uh, well in, in Belgrade or how has chemistry changed or. And, and I think. I just, let me rephrase my question. Like how you how you teach organic chemistry to undergrads. So when you were taking it as an undergrad at Belgrade, you know how is how much has really changed since then? Since now you're teaching it. Well, I uh, I have to say not not much. Yeah. Um, 
Because, you know, I teach organic chemistry one, so this is, you know, not... not yeah, the it's not rocket science. Yeah, organic yeah. chemistry. There's a lot of, lot of basic stuff there. But also, um, the... Uh, the mechanism, the sort of the, the way of teaching organic chemistry was changing worldwide uh, right about a time. Uh, well, I think it's his change in the US, but in Serbia, it was changing right about a time when I started studying. Mm. Uh, and so prior, and you can see that in sort of textbooks, right? So um, the uh, the textbook from which I studied at the University of Belgrade uh, was Peter Wolfert's Organic Chemistry. And I ended up doing my PhD with him later on. Uh, but this hey. was one of the sort of uh, of the series of textbooks that that had this sort of mechanistic understanding of organic chemistry mm. as uh, as the front front and center. Right? Um, and I was the second generation of University of Belgrade to use that textbook. And so from that, you know, my uh, uh, and of course, you know, that textbook has went through a couple of additional editions, but sure, things don't change too much. And so I think my uh, my. The way I studied that subject was pretty similar to my U.S. peers back then, and it is quite similar now. But, you know, let's say in the 80s um, and, and before, I think a lot of studying of, of organic chemistry was very much reaction-oriented. Of course, mm. we still study a lot of reactants, reactions, but sort of the underlying mechanistic um, things were sort of a side note. Oftentimes, they were not, not known still. Right. But it was sort of classes of organic compounds, characteristic reactions, very synthetically and analytically focused, but but not so much mechanistic. Mm -hmm. Now, so you're studying at the University of Belgrade, and then then you decided um, you know, you're going to do your PhD at UC Berkeley. Uh, so, what were some of the decisions that were like, you know, I were because like, I, I mean, I can only imagine like switching countries, moving uh, you know across the world essentially. Right. So what were some of those uh, what were some of those thoughts and decisions kind of leading up to that? Well, the first one was that I um, I sort of wanted to leave Serbia uh, because, you know, the, the 90s was sort of very, very difficult time there. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. It was the, not terribly pleasant. And then the sort of prospect of finding a job and, you know, just kind of working and, and you know, buying a house something was pretty distant back then now this thing has changed a lot um but that was sort of one big big driver um the second one was uh was my parents were sort of encouraging me to do that uh mm. to study abroad uh because uh, uh because they lived abroad and they were sort of supportive of that um and then the third one was that you know i wanted to um even though in retrospect it's kind of difficult explain why the US and not other places in the world. Back then I was very set on studying in, uh, in the US, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and so, um, or sort of North America. So I applied to only a handful of places, Berkeley, Stanford, and for some reason, University of Ottawa in Canada. Uh, oh. And, uh, and um, uh, really the Ottawa and Berkeley were the only ones to, to give me offers. Nice. Uh, uh, and, uh, and so at that point, there was not much of a contest. And so then I went to Berkeley. Uh, but, you know, it was, um, there was sort of a background story to that, that uh, during my second year as an organic student, hmm. um, you know, I was studying from this translation of Peter Walker's book. And then I, uh, I, something wasn't clear to me. And so then I emailed him. Right? So this is, you know, like sounds pretty, pretty normal today but it's like 1997 right so in Serbia they're like 
the email just came like three years ago before that. And so, uh, and uh, so he gets this email from his kid in Serbia and uh, relatively poor English. And then, uh, and then he responds and I'm like, oh, like well, this is, this is where you should refer to. Um, and so then, you know, two years after that, this was, I was doing it as a sophomore organic chemistry. And then, then um, two years after that, I was like, oh, you know, I'm finishing college. I want to do grad school in the United States. Uh, so I sent him another email. Like, I was like, oh yeah, you should, you should apply. Uh, and um, uh, and so I did, and then he sort of pushed pushed my application uh, or whatever. So I talked to yeah. somebody who needed to hear about this, uh, and um, and eventually I got admitted, and then I went back there, uh, went went to to Berkeley, uh, and this was uh, this just this was a great time, best times of my life. Look at that! I mean. I tell I tell people all the time like sometimes all you gotta do is ask or just send an email or something like that and you never know what might transpire you know. That's yeah, really I mean, interesting. Exactly. So there's like this formal process and then uh, a lot of these formal processes are very they're there, there for a reason and they they work. Uh, but sometimes mm -hmm. you know uh, just a, a good word to somebody uh, works uh, you know it speeds up the formal process. And so I yeah. think. Uh, that's that's very important, uh, and you know, like countries like Serbia, which are are notorious for that. That you know, sort of connections are very important to the point that really nothing else is important. That is like a lot of people that are completely incompetent get hired because they have you know a dad who knows uh, who knows people, um, mm. and that of course is not not the way to go. Um, but then uh, the the U.S. is really far far from that. Uh, but it's still going you know, to connect still matter. Right. And so that's, you know, you're right. The, uh, so that's sort of perhaps an advice to your listeners. If, if they need one from me, <laughs> that, you know, building these connections uh, is, is important. Uh, in addition to just building a resume and building, uh, building a knowledge base. Sure. So you, you move, you, you get out of Serbia, you land in UC Berkeley, you work for Peter Vollard. Um, what are you working on as a PhD student? Like, what do you, what do you, uh, what, well, well, actually I'd like to hear your first, like you land in California. Cause I, I can only imagine like landing in California. Like, you're like, you're probably like, Oh my God. Cause Berkeley's in LA, right? Is it in LA? Berkeley is in San Francisco Bay area. So it's oh, North San Francisco. California, okay. Right? So you learned in San Francisco and I can only imagine like what the scenes are like, you know, probably crazy. But yeah, so I mean, like as soon as I land, so I, you know, I I went there in December, right? And so you know, in Europe, it's just like snowing, it's right. great, cold. Uh, and then I uh, I land there, and it's it's not very warm, but it's like sunny, and it's just like all the stereotypes of California playing out. So I get to Berkeley campus, <laughs> and like most Jewish campuses, it's U.S. campuses, you know, it's pretty nicely, it's well kempt campus, but it also there's like these agaves and these trees that I've never seen before. Um, and I was very relaxed. Uh, and then, you know, one thing that I remember is that I, um, when I first walked into what was to be my future lab where I spent the next four years, mm -hmm. this this place looked, you know, like in pretty poor shape. It was, like, <laughs> it was an old lab. Um, it was, you know, all the equipment that was, uh, was, was top notch. You know, we could order any chemical, but it's like this was my first impression. The lab just didn't look like this sort of spaceship labs that I imagined right. in California. But then, you know, after a while I realized, and then eventually it got renovated, but, you know, I realized that this is not the, the main, uh, the main um, asset there that, you know, of course, lab, lab space is important, but, um, but it was sort of the access to, to equipment, the access to really right. you know, funding and, and the most importantly access to, to people. 
right. that we have sort of world expert experts within 10 minute walk. Um, and, uh, and there was sort of really no, no limitations to that. Um, and that sort of is something that my PhD advisor told me that like, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff at Berkeley and places like that, but many of them not by sort of somebody directly telling you them, mm. but instead by the, what we call, what he called osmosis. It's just kind of like absorb all this knowledge. Um, and this was just very true because, you know, there was, there was just like so many interesting things, chemistry and otherwise that were like dozens of seminars every week that, that I wanted to attend because they were all like world leaders in their respective fields. Many of them are not in chemistry. So I had to sort of actively restrain myself. <laughs> but this, you know, I could just like do this all the time. You're going to attend these like amazing seminars in all sorts of areas. And then of course, not do anything on your own. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was just, uh, it was just like uh, an embarrassment of riches uh, in terms of this intellectual stimulation. I can definitely attest it out a little bit because coming to Houston, I didn't know we had, you know, basically seminars every week. And like, you know, I do, I mean, if I really wanted to, you know, we have some, we can go to seminars in other departments too. It's not like limited to organic. And so I didn't even know we had that. So it's been really cool to see um, that. So what did you work on um, as a graduate student? Right. So I worked on, um, it was sort of a very synthetic project. Uh, it was mm. sort of organic, organic metallic chemistry, but work on the synthesis of, uh, of organic molecules known as phenylenes, mm. um, which are a fused uh, benzene and cyclobutadiene rings. And so they are... Okay. Mm. Uh, and so the benzene is aromatic and cyclobutadienes are anti-aromatic. Uh, and sort of putting them together kind of starts uh, stabilizing cyclobutadiene, but also destabilizing the benzene. And so I start seeing all sorts of interesting, mostly theoretically interesting phenomena on both localization, aromaticity, um, and, and it's just synthetically very challenging. Um, and so, um, should we explain real quick, you know, aromaticity versus anti-aromaticity real quick? We should. Um, so, uh, so aromaticity is sort of this, I think still poorly understood. Also, my colleagues would disagree with that. Poorly understood of proper property of, of molecules, which have a cyclic array of, of pi electrons that are, um, that are, have certain magic numbers that then appear to yield unusual stabilization mm. uh, and the bond, bond delocalization as well as magnetic properties to these rings, right? Yeah. Uh, and so um, there's uh, this, the, this, the prototypical aromatic molecule is benzene, which has six rings in this, uh, in this circuit. Now, all other aromatic molecules are less aromatic than benzene, um, but they show uh, you know, evidence of, of some of these behaviors at other numbers of electrons, such as 10 electrons, 14, and so on. Um, and depending on their geometry, whether they're twisted or not, they can be uh, additional numbers. Mm. Um, and then anti-aromatic molecules, of course, have the wrong numbers of electrons, it's... typically differing by two from the correct ones. Um, and they show um, they don't show this uh, stabilization. In fact, they destabilize their bonds are intentionally elongated, and the magnetic properties are different. And so the reason why I say that this is poorly understood is that sort of the probes for aromaticity are, are multiple. So one is reactivity, another one is structure, the third is magnetic properties. And very often they disagree. So what, what, based on one property, people will suggest that something is aromatic. Based on another, they, they will suggest it's not. Um, but um, I think aromaticity definitely exists. 
it affects a great many areas of chemistry and, and, and uh, our colleague Judy Wu is really sort of exploring how aromaticity of the excited states of molecules is affecting properties that we before did not associate with aromaticity. But at the same time, sort of, it's kind of difficult to put your finger on what, on, on a one sentence, easily understood definition of aromaticity. Yeah, that's a, that was actually a really good uh, um, capture of aromaticity. Because, yeah, you, at least in undergrad chemistry, you know, you learn as aromaticity being this, like, it is or it isn't, it's anti, it's non, or it, it is aromatic. It's, but I feel like it's more of a, like almost like a gradient. It's not like some things just aren't, 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 and they do behave in 2D and 3D. So it, they're very interesting molecules in general. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. I just <laughs> wanted to put that out there. Um, so you're looking at benzene or aromatics and um, you're reacting aromatic molecules with anti-aromatic molecules, right? Exactly. You're trying to mm. put them together in one bigger molecule. Um, mm. And that uh, uh, is sort of a, there's several reasons for do that. One is that because aromaticity is poorly understood, this was supposedly going to help us. Um, then uh, there, these molecules are very rich in carbon, so they, when you sort of, you know, put them in a furnace and, and eliminate the remaining hydrogen from them, then they can produce all sorts of unusual carbon structures, so carbon mm -hmm. nanostructures that are not nanotubes, they're not fullerenes, they're not graphene, they're something else. Um, then, of course, it's synthetically quite challenging. Um, and because the key reaction that we were using uh, was this uh, cobalt-mediated cyclotrimerization of alkynes, mm. there was also a lot of organometallic chemistry as well in there. And so there was sort of a bunch of things that came together. Um, and so I worked on that uh, for, uh, for four years. I made a bunch of these phenylines. I made a lot of um, other macrocyclic compounds are very large organic rings. And these are mm -hmm. something that uh, uh, that I still do now in my, my independent career. And then in 2005, we, uh, I, I finished, I graduated. Uh, and- uh, Were there any uh, key findings you think? Anything to, that really kind of stands findings, out? Um, this was sort of, um, there were a couple of moments during my PhD where it was just sort of like, oh, this is, this is pretty awesome. Um, mm. But I think one was, but I think uh, most of it was was relatively steady progress. It was kind of pretty evol evolutionary in terms sure. of, of increase. Um, but one of them was, uh, one of these findings was that we discovered that we can use alkyne metathesis, which is another organometallic reaction, to construct uh, these materials much faster than we, we did before. Mm. Uh, and so this is, um, we did it in 2003, and nowadays it's pretty well established. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, making some of these, you know, targets sort of this final time when you when you produce it and you get the clean NMR spectrum and you know that you've got it, that's a pretty, pretty special feeling. Um, also, almost, you know, at times a little bit paralyzing because, you know, once you're successful, then for a couple of days, I don't really know what to do with myself <laughs> because it's just kind of like everything else <laughs> stepped down. Um, right. It wouldn't last too long, but it was just kind of an interesting feeling. It was like, ah, oh, uh, what success blocks <laughs> you. <laughs> That's really cool. So, uh, what were like? So what, then, then you go do a postdoc um, at uh, UCLA. So, mm -hmm. what were um, some of the decisions like going into doing your uh, postdoc? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's sort of an interesting time, and that's uh, something that my PhD advisor was very helpful. And so he mm. sort of suggested that, of course, I should work on something that uh, uh, that I enjoyed, uh, that I want to to learn more about. He also suggested that I should um, diversify so that I work on something that is uh, quite a bit different from what I did as my PhD, uh, as well as that I should do this in a place like geographic location, which is which is appealing, right? And so this was, he was, he was a big arguer, a proponent of not doing a postdoc in, in College Station. And this is his work. His work. <laughs> the shade uh, at A&M. <laughs> right. And so that's, um, um, and so I, uh, I applied for, play, uh, you know, I, you know, cast a pretty broad net. I sent out four applications for, uh, for my postdocs. Um, one was um, MIT. I applied for, uh, Work with Tim Swagger, who promptly responded that uh, that he was out of space, but you know, thank me for my application. Um, and then there was uh, ETH in Zurich, uh, where I applied to work with the with the late Francois Didri. Mm. Um, uh, and then uh, University of Tokyo, where I applied to work with Eiji uh, Nakamura, and both of them accepted me. Um, but then, kind of late in this game, I um, I. Uh, Really stumbled across uh, Fraser Stoddard's work mm. with UCLA at the time, um, and then um, this was also a decision which was personal uh, uh, at the time because my my then girlfriend, later wife, the later ex-wife, um, she was still a student at Berkeley, and so uh, sort of staying geographically close would have made this work better. Um, and then um, I, out of all this, you know, three opportunities, I chose uh, Fraser. And so I moved south to UCLA. Uh, and that was, uh, that was uh, in retrospect, a great decision. It was, yeah. um, it was uh, one of the nicest periods in my life. You know, I was, I was 27, 28. Uh, and um the chemistry at UCLA, first, the group was much larger. It was much better funded. Uh, it was uh, a very global, uh, uh, you know, phrase that would you know, jet around the world throughout mm-hmm. most of most of the year. Uh, and it was uh, it was a lot of postdocs. And so it was kind of a good place to be a postdoc yourself because there were a lot of other people with similar plans that you could share your ideas with, your, your concerns, what have you. Um, and... Uh, the most important part is that the chemistry worked there really well. So at, at Berkeley, I and I did quite well, but uh, but the reactions, the, the experiments were just quite difficult and often unsuccessful. And uh, at UCLA, almost everything I tried worked quite nicely. And um, and so that you know that that papers and um, uh, and a uh, uh, bunch of conferences, uh, and it was just kind of a place that uh, that I very much enjoyed uh, yeah. at the time. For a while, I uh, I got an opportunity to teach for one quarter. They're a quarter system at UCLA, so I hey. taught organic chemistry two actually there uh, to whatever two hundred undergrads. So this was an amazing preparation for uh, for an academic career, uh, and it was just sort of I got to explore a lot of things. And this is something my PhD advisor told me that the postdoc is just a great time in your life to explore a lot of things because you already have a degree, so nobody's gonna you know. No matter how successful or unsuccessful your postdoc is, you still have a PhD, so you'll you'll be fine. Um, and uh, uh, and so that was really that. Uh, and of course, living in LA uh, was 
that was pretty pretty impressive uh so it was, it was a lot of fun how many cities get better than uh la as far well nowadays it's definitely an interesting conversation but i'm sure i'm sure you know years ago it was actually like the the place to be in um and in some cases it definitely still is what i want to ask you about though is the purpose of getting a postdoc because my impressions of it now i, I haven't really like looked at like postdocs at all and haven't even really considered doing one but my impression of it is getting postdocs at least in a phd for chemistry is like you're either gonna go do you want to be a professor or you want to get like the high-end jobs at like a pharmaceutical or um petroleum company so you know the dows the gsks like they're the ones that are like looking at you is there do you think there's truth to that and like has it really changed at all since you attempted to go get a postdoc like um, no, I think there's, uh, no, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, and I would just add maybe a couple other reasons. So, so yes, basically, if you want to be a professor, you, it is almost impossible to get a job without a postdoc. There's mm-hmm. a handful of examples I know, but they're probably less than 1%. Uh, and, uh, especially if you want to work at the research active university, uh, then, uh, then you can, uh, then you probably you, you do need a postdoc. Mm. Uh, then uh, some uh, some high profile positions in uh, in in industry will will uh, want you to to do postdoc. Um, and uh, but not all. I think uh, that depends then a lot on the job market uh, because if the job market is uh, is is happening, uh, then then there's a lot of positions and people can get jobs if they're good out of their PhDs right away. Uh, and then, uh, and then when this sort of slows down, um, well, first a lot more people will go to to seek postdocs when the job market is poor because postdoc market is kind of stable since uh, since it's not really funded by the economy. It's, uh, most of them are funded by the government, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people will just go to postdoc positions to wait out the market for a year or two, mm-hmm. and it will typically change. And then you apply, and you know, of course you have additional experience, but you know just you were just not unemployed during those two years. Yeah, um, that's a good point. And, I never thought about that. And then, of course, uh, uh, you you improve your uh, your credentials by doing postdoc. Uh, but then um, there's there's other reasons. Like for example, uh, a lot. I was very lucky, but a lot of foreign students you know get to the U.S. and you know the top U.S. schools have really they're spoiled for choice. So they have first the best American students to pick for, and then you know the best students from the top universities in the world and then everybody else. And so they, they get way more applicants. So let's say you're, you're an excellent student uh, uh, and you get into a place like UH. Um, but, you know, UH opens some doors, but not all. Uh, and so doing a postdoc at a place that is significantly better ranked uh, will then start opening a lot of doors. Uh, yeah. And so so this is, this is a, an important motivation to do that. Um, because to be truly to be told, especially the academic market in the U.S. is still kind of discriminatory in that you need to have either a PhD or a postdoc or both from one of the top ten schools uh, yeah. if you want to work at a research-intensive university in the U.S. Um, and so that that then necessitates not just a postdoc but a kind of right kind of postdoc. But to be to be told, you know, all of these reasons are kind of not terribly exciting is like oh you have to do this or yeah you do this because you can't get a job or just like i do this 
But at the same time, there's like a lot of actually I think a lot of my peers, you know, is very good at this. There's like a lot more positive ways to convince somebody to do a postdoc. And this is like first, it's um it's a great time in your life. Uh, and it actually gives you a lot of freedom because when you're a PhD student, you know, you have you have your PhD and there's a lot of formal requirements during that. And of course, when you're faculty or you have any sort of a real job, and there's a lot more other requirements than that. And postdoc is kind of very free in that um, you have, you know, you have two years or uh, you can live wherever you want. You know, it's temporary, so you don't have to sort of establish, you don't have to search for houses or any of that stuff. And um, um, so there's a lot of freedom. If you can get one of these fellowships, then there's even more freedom because you know, not only you can choose where you live and who do you work for, you can also choose what you work for. Because if you're, mm. if you're a PI and you have a postdoc who is self-funded, you know, provided they don't propose to do something completely ridiculous, you're like, yeah, well, do whatever you like, as long as it's sort of <laughs> kind of aligned with my research interests. Um, uh, and then, you know, the, the 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 stipends are quite a bit uh, more generous than PhD stipends, so there's, you're not so poor, so you can afford some, <laughs> some things that are nice. Um, so from that perspective, and I, I kind of subscribe to that, because, you know, just like living in LA at that time, uh, doing a postdoc was, was pretty great, so... So, I definitely, uh, uh, I definitely agree. Like, I definitely hear to that because, um, yeah, there definitely is a negative mindset of being like, oh, well, you have to do this to get this job. But that's a good way of putting it because you really could live. I mean, virtually, if you are in a fellowship, you could live wherever you want. But even like, just finding a PI that you're interested in their research and just say, hey, look, do you have an opening for a postdoc? I mean, then you could, you know, virtually move wherever you want. Really, you know? Yeah. And it's a great like stopgap. <laughs> to go literally wherever you want and do, do chemistry. And yeah, like you said, it's not the formalism of a PhD. Like you already have that. So you're more or less just doing chemistry every day, you know? Exactly. And a lot of, you know, us, um, um, has, uh, has of course a lot of funding for postdocs, but not, uh, doesn't have really dedicated funding to, to attract people from abroad or not too much of it, mm. but a lot of European countries or, or places like Japan, um, they have a dedicated funding to attract people from abroad because they have had problems attracting people from abroad uh, in the past. And then, um, and so, so for an American PhD, it's very easy. Well, it's not very easy, but it's quite quite straightforward to get one of these. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then you go and live in a foreign country for two years. And then, if you don't like it, you just come back. If you like it, you yeah, sounds back. sounds great to me. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it gives you sort of this sort of government or somebody else sponsors your time of exploration, which is, which is pretty nice. Yeah. So what did you work on as a postdoc then? What, what was the chemistry that you were doing? Um, as a postdoc, I worked on, uh, on mechanically interlocked molecule, which is sort of fancy name for molecules that have two components that are not covalently connected, but they're inseparable. And so if you have this, it's sort of like a chain links. So this molecule yep. is known as cathinanes or ataxanes. Uh, so I worked with Fraser Stoddard uh, on that, uh, and uh, my sort of projects were were still quite synthetic in nature. Uh, but mm. we, uh, we, me and 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 Will Will Dictel, who is now a professor at Northwestern, and a couple of other uh, then postdocs, we uh, started using click chemistry to uh, to make the uh, make these mechanical interlock molecules because it's a big buzzword. Sort of, yes, click chemistry is buzzword now, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, back then in, in 2006, 
this was all you know relatively new and a lot of people are just kind of annoyed like what is this the chemistry it's just the just like what uh, was the big deal uh and uh and but it was sort of um, the, the objective there to use this very mild conditions to close up these molecules which are very fragile right and so mm -hmm. if you have you know sort of this chain in a link then of course the links can separate very easily if you look at them wrong uh and so click chemistry and, other, and it wasn't unique but other mild reactions allow you to sort of work on this very fragile complexes and do these reactions um and yeah. so uh and then from that you know this sort of led to to applications in a whole range of fields in uh deliver uh, drug delivery devices in liquid crystals i didn't work on those uh but one one thing that i started towards the end of my postdoc was incorporating this into porous materials metal organic frameworks um, and so at the time, Omar Yagi was at, at UCLA, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, we collaborated with his group uh, on making these materials. Most of the collaboration actually happened after after I left, um, but this was really sort of the, the the first proposals on this were written by by myself and uh, Adrian Cote, who is. Uh, was now I, I believe he's still a research scientist at Xerox uh, in Canada. Now, do you know how uh, the the cantonines and rotaxines were used in like are used in drug delivery? Do you like, have any specific examples or? Uh, well, this is uh, the, the, most of this is, is published, uh, but I think uh, this was mostly the use of rotaxines, where you have sort of this uh, this macrocycle which was threaded on a on a on a string. Mm -hmm. And it acts kind of a stop as a stopper for a silica nanoparticle which was underneath, right? Mm -hmm. And then upon some stimulus, this uh, this rotaxin would disassemble, the macrocycle would leave, and the silica would start leaking the drug that was loaded into it. Ah, so it was acting really kind of like uh, you know whatever a cork mm -hmm. uh, on a on a drug delivery bottle that you could remove by stimuli and then also put it back on by a stimuli. So you mentioned you use you you said you uh, use click chemistry, right? Yes. Um, I feel like we should briefly discuss that real quick, as uh, sure. um, well, this is my unpopular opinion, but the Nobel Prize can be a little bit of grandstanding. I'm not saying people that do it are um like their grandstanding. I'm not saying that, but the chemistry um is important too. But click chemistry just won the 2000 or. 2022 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. So I think we probably should just, I think we definitely should discuss that a little bit. Um, so if you if you want to explain uh, click chemistry and like what you were using it for, that'd be great. Uh, well, click chemistry is sort of in a, in a just a general sense of the word is uh, uh, the method of chemistry that was pioneered by, by Barry Sharpless and his co-workers. Mm. Uh, that was uh, sort of chemical reactions that, that use, uh, that, that work, almost quantitatively, almost all the time, regardless of what else you have stuck on there. Um, and um, uh, and that means that, so there's, I think he's formalized this in, in, in an article uh, maybe two, two decades ago. Uh, but the idea here is that you have a reaction that just works really well uh, and all the time. Uh, and um, the prototypical one is this copper catalyzed alkyne azide cycle addition. Uh, which he did not discover. This was a reaction that was known, that was discovered by Rolf Fusgen, this uh, dipolar cycle addition. Um, mm. 
but the, the catalyzed version works at room temperature uh, with a catalyst, which is very inexpensive. It can be copper sulfate and, and ascorbic acid, so vitamin C. So very cheap reagents. Mm. Um, and this uh, works, uh, works almost every time. Um, and then there's a number of other reactions, which my impression is that uh, none of them are as popular as this copper catalyzed cycloaddition. Yeah. Um, but um, the idea here, uh, so this this was this reaction was discovered by Sharpless in 2003, I believe. Although simultaneously, Morton Meldal in, in in Copenhagen now has reported the same reaction, um, although not uh, he didn't really uh, market it under the term flick reaction. Mm. Uh, and the the facility with which this reaction is is operates allowed its use in um, in, uh, in sort of very uh, very kind of hostile re- re- environments for other reactions, including in the living cell. Mm. Right. And this is the contribution of the third uh, Nobel laureate, which was Carolyn Bertozzi, and that's the one that I'm right uh, my most uh, most familiar with because at the time Bertozzi was a faculty at Berkeley. Um, and, and, and when I was a PhD student there. Um, however, to use this in, uh, in, uh, in living organisms, uh, copper catalyst had to be eliminated because copper is toxic. Mm. Um, and so what she did then is switch from just regular alkynes to strained alkynes, cyclooctane. Uh, and uh, this is a work of, of a colleague who was started his PhD a year after me, Nick Agard. Uh, and who discovered that cyclooctane will react with azides uh, even without copper. Uh, and, wow. uh, and that then allowed them to sort of put all sorts of uh, biological probes on either the azide or the alkyne part, click them together and couple them to uh, and, and, uh, and study all this chemistry in that cell. And because there's no, the, the nature doesn't use azides and doesn't really use alkynes very much, this was completely, um, you know, orthogonal to the otherwise operation of the cell. So neither did it interfere with the cell too much, nor did the cell interfere with the, with the chemistry too much. Mm. Uh, and so that this is this sort of bi-orthogonal chemistry, um, which this was one of the reactions. And Carolyn actually, because it's covered a number of other reactions, both before and after this, but by connecting to this, I think this is sort of what the Nobel Committee recognized. Yeah. Very, uh, yeah, thank you for that aside. That's a, uh... I actually didn't even really read up on the click chemistry. I just hear the buzzword and was like, oh, that's cool. Um, so thank you for explaining that. Uh, so how, so actually I want to ask you like, um, what were your, some of your, uh, some of your favorite spots in LA and, uh, and UCLA? Like what were some of your favorite things to do down there? Uh, well, you know, in LA, uh, the, the beach was one of them. Mm. Yeah, the beach. Uh, so my favorite beaches in LA would be Manhattan and, Redondo beaches because they were not the tourists would not go to them as much as they would to the Venice and Santa Monica beach. Sure, but they were they were just exactly the same other way in every respect. Um, and then another thing was that just like um, one thing that I, I love to do is just drive around uh, because LA is just geographically very interesting. There are canyons going through the city. There are mountains. It's the beach. Um, there is there's literally oil fields in the city of LA. <laughs> from where I lived to the airport, you would drive through the city and there would be this, you know, very small oil field. Yeah. It would be there. Uh, and, um, and and not only that, there's just like sort of, it's, it's, it's a lot more densely populated than Houston. So there's like, you know, sort of neighborhoods that are, you know, all sorts of different ethnicities. Um, 
so that I enjoyed very much. Um, I still have a very good circle of friends in LA, so that that mm. I um, uh, and uh, it's, uh, Japanese food. I was yeah. uh, the this neighborhood of Torrance, which is south of LA. So it's like some of the most authentic Japanese dishes. Uh, I, I, I gotta get out there eventually one of these days it definitely seems like a great place to visit so how so how did you uh well how'd you land the job at university of houston and what were uh or uh how'd you get to this point well you know when i was finishing up my postdoc then i was like i should get a job uh and then um academic job market you you sort of apply for uh positions by submitting it's, it's a bit more involved with an industrial job. You submit your uh, CV, of course, and your cover letter, but also the description of your past research and the proposals for the future research. Mm. Um, and so based on, uh, and of course, the recommendation letters, follow this from your advisors and mentors. Um, and when this whole package is sent to the, uh, at, at the time I applied to 50 different universities because it was 2007 when I was applying was a pretty good year. So there was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of opening, openings, um, and um, uh, I got you know ten interviews out of those fifty uh, applications uh, at uh, places across the across the country and in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and eventually two of them translated into offers, and so it was an offer between uh, it was between University of Oregon, Eugene, and University of Houston here, uh, and these were you know in terms of you know, their rankings and, and the quality of uh, faculty, students, at the fact, they're quite comparable. But of course, there's a lot of other differences, which I think at the end sort of uh, decided uh, that, you know, uh, Houston is a large metropolitan city, mm-hmm. also very diverse. And then uh, Eugene, Oregon, while, while gorgeous, is a pretty, pretty small town. Uh, yeah. And it's, um, and uh, especially at the time, was not, not known for its diversity. Um, and so uh, me and then my then wife sort of jointly decided to, to come to Houston. Um, her interests were in, in sort of Latin American politics and social studies. And so I think from that perspective, Houston was also a better choice. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what happened. Uh, and so this was in 2008. In, in August, they showed up here. Uh, a month later, there was my first hurricane, Ike. Yeah. sleep in a, in a windowless bathroom to, a, tr- to... a true houston experience right there i was you know it was uh quite literally a, a warm welcome <laughs> so that's a, a great segue into you know what your group does now because uh those uh those frameworks are very uh, prevalent nowadays so if you want to explain your research now and what your group is up um, to nowadays okay so my group uh, is I've been very lucky to work with, you know, let's say my exact number, but let's say on the order of 30, 30 to 40 people uh, mm. from all over the world. I think it's we're up to 18 or 19 countries now um, on uh, on all sorts of projects that are sort of related to the my training. So the applications of supramolecular chemistry, which I did at UCLA and synthetic organic chemistry that I did at Berkeley. Um, but on application of this to a little bit more of material science. Um, mm. And so we have throughout the past 14 years, uh, done all sorts of things, but now we have kind of settled on making um, 
molecules and materials that are of some interest to the, the capture of greenhouse gases. Uh, and um, the way this, this appears to be working in our hands is that we make small organic molecules that then self-assemble into, into crystals. Uh, and these crystals are different from all other crystals in that they're porous, meaning that they have large voids because they pack inefficiently. Um, and one of our most challenging tasks is how to design this inefficient packing by designing a molecule because predicting a crystal structure from a molecular structure is still kind of a black art. Um, and then once we have these crystals, we wanna make uh, enough of them so that we can test them, oftentimes in collaborations as sort of materials for the capture of anesthetics or carbon dioxide or freons or, uh, or you know, what have you, we're working on methane now. Um, and so this is sort of a project that, um, uh, you know, I claim all the credit for, but uh, it was really, <clears throat> the key discoveries that really set us on this track were made by two of my former students. Uh, this is uh, Teng Hao Chen, who is now a professor in, in Taiwan, and then Ching Ji, who is a professor in China, uh, who have um, really developed these, you know, these initial molecules uh, with minimal input from me, and oftentimes with kind of subtle encouragement of me, which came in the form of this will never work. <laughs> okay, try it if you want to. Uh, and sure enough, these things work. Uh, Gotta love the honesty so, there. Yeah, so this is, so I, I doomed them to success by saying <laughs> it will never work. Um, and um, and, and that, that is something that, that's a model that I kind of like in that uh, some of the, the, the best ideas that I claim credit for were not my ideas. Um, but um, uh, but I think it sort of shows that, that my group is a fertile environment for this thing to happen to the students. Sure. Uh, so with the uh, the frameworks and I know this, so the app, so sometimes it's, it's a little bit hard to explain to people that like from the chemistry point of view, we're not necessarily the ones doing the applications. Like we're just the ones kind of right. making, we're just the ones making these things. We don't necessarily use them for applications, but I assumed, I, I'm just going to assume that you're kind of into the literature a little bit um, on like greenhouse gases. I assume you are a little bit. Um, but so how like, uh, and you can say you're not an expert on this, but how big, a how big of a problem is the greenhouse gases? Um, like, is it like a sizable uh, problem? Because at least from media, some media is saying, you know, it's like it's going to end the world in 10 years. And then you have other media where it's like, ah, it doesn't even exist. So, you know, what is the, is there, is it somewhere in the middle? Is it something that we should be definitely worried about? But I don't know. I think we should definitely be worried about, but I think it's sort of, um, you know, the, 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 I think that the truth is somewhere in between us as always. Um, uh, the first, you know, the, the climate is changing and uh, that, uh, that is neither a good or a bad thing, uh, depending on how far you zoom out of it. This, uh, you know, from the perspective of our planet, that's really completely neither good or bad. Right? And a lot of people who are saying like, oh, if you save our planet, it's like, well, our planet will be fine. Yeah. As long as we don't actively blow it up into pieces, it will, it will survive. It's just that we might not survive. Right. Uh, because, um, you know, we, you know, like to think a lot about our, uh, 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 about how resilient and big and strong our country. But I think COVID epidemic has shown us, especially the early days of COVID epidemic, where all of these elaborate systems that we're building, they're just all collapsed. 
uh, and um, in within a matter of weeks, uh, it just shows that you know human society is still very fragile, right? And so during COVID, we saw that you know we had this all the airplane traffic just stopped, uh, and you know deliveries, you know before you could get uh, you know a pink pencil on a Sunday afternoon mm. delivered to your house. Now, and then during COVID, you couldn't get you know toilet paper delivered <laughs> for a week, um, and so. Uh, what I think people don't realize because we live this kind of sheltered lives industrial society is that, you know, we are still very dependent on nature very directly. And, uh, and that we are really comfortable living in a very narrow range of, of atmospheric, you know, coordinates, right. Mm -hmm. uh, that like, you know, and, and I think anybody who has not had electricity during the Houston summer for a day should oh, appreciate man. that nature is, it's a powerful force and that we just we just barely you know barely resisting it um and so from that perspective i think uh then uh then these changes which you know on paper look kind of small you know like increasing global temperature averages by you know two degrees i'm like yeah it's two degrees how, how important is that but no, this is actually very important because you know most of our crops grow within a very narrow range of of, of temperatures mm -hmm. um uh, most of you know our forests. Uh, the, the a lot of climate is uh, is a lot of not climate, but a lot of weather events that are damaging are influenced by this. Um, and so there, and of course there's just straight out heat waves that mm. uh, in developed countries like France and and the U.S. and, and Japan, you know, kill people by by thousands um, during the past year. Um, and so, I think these sort of uh, this. Uh, Greenhouse gases are the emissions are happening. They are responsible for climate change, and climate change does affect us. Uh, but uh, I think there's now a growing realization of people kind of reaching consensus that this does that. I think a number of people that seriously deny climate change has dramatically dropped in the past ten years, uh, and I think even those who are denying it in public still privately believe it. They just died for whatever reason. Um, but I think it's also the, the number of people who believe that we can prevent climate change has, has dropped dramatically. Um, and that we are sort of now resigned that the climate change is happening and that we're already adapting to it. And that it's just, we got to prevent it from worsening and we got to continue the adaptation stage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, for people, it's sometimes, you know, these things that seem so, detached from everyday life it's kind of like how do you how are you adapting to climate how am i adapting to climate change and it's like you know i have agreed to pay electricity bill which is you know 30 percent more than it was 10 years ago because mm. i use more air conditioning and you know i haven't gone on a ride in the streets because of that because i adapted to climate change yeah uh, you know people that rebuild after a hurricane and don't just move away uh, they're adapting to climate change so this is happening to everybody yeah um but it's just that you know at some point this adaptation uh you know will start affecting so many people that perhaps preventing is getting at that point it's, mm. it's worthwhile yeah i mean it's definitely a you can't like there's nothing we could do right now that'll like stop climate change but i think if once people individually realize like you know, there's something that we can do day to day just and start changing that that uh, that mindset. Then yeah, that's all we really, really can do. What I want to ask you, too, 
is kind of the chemistry of gas capture of your molecules. Because I actually, I, I didn't realize how much as like a chemist you take for granted. Like when you think about the air, like we know it, it's oxygen, nitrogen, and argon, maybe some other gases. But to us, it's very conceptually simple. But to many people that don't do chemistry, like like the air, it's not invisible. I mean, it is invisible, but there's things in the air. So how do your molecules uh, that you make, the frameworks, how do they capture gas? Like, what does that mean, right? Okay, so, um, well, first, we don't capture gases from air. So this mm. would typically be, uh, and of course, you know, we're still away from applications quite a bit. So, um, so we're capturing this in lab conditions. Uh, but the idea here would be to capture these gases from point sources because, you know, focusing on things such as carbon dioxide and the concentration of carbon dioxide in the air is 0.04%. So it's very small. Hmm. And we, we're not going to capture it from air. That's that's not the plan. The plan is to capture it from a power plant or someplace which emits a lot of carbon dioxide. And in those those emissions, it is 20 or 30 or 40%. Right? Um, something similar applies to freons, which are completely synthetic man-made gases that are used for refrigeration. Mm. Uh, and they can be also captured at the point of emissions, which would be, you know, let's say a leaking fridge or an air condition. Or some of them don't even need to be captured. Uh, some of them are being phased out. And so there is just, uh, you know, tanks and tanks of these gases that you can't just, you know, vent into the atmosphere. <laughs> they just need to kind of uh, store them indefinitely in some sort of material yeah. that you bury in the ground. Um, so it's just sequestration away from that. And so the way this would work is that, you know, we have these materials, which, you know, to anybody else, they look like uh, white powder, uh, right? Um, but their microscopic structure is different from, let's say, sugar, which is also white powder, in that um, there's pores, kind of like a sponge has pores, except that these pores are very small. They're sort of on the side, on the dimensions are similar to the dimensions of carbon dioxide or some of these molecules. And so as the gas passes through this um, through this sort of powder, some of it stays in the powder, right? Um, and so you sort of have a basically powder filled with gas. Um, and then that allows us then to, uh, now of course, um, we're not gonna keep carbon dioxide, for example, in that powder indefinitely. Mm. We like to capture it from some place which risks emitting into the atmosphere and then put it perhaps underground to some place where it's going to stay for a while because carbon dioxide is heavier than air. So I think if you put it underground, it's going to stay, stay put for a while. Mm. So uh, does when you, in the lab setting, when you have, when you pass um, those point gases through the, the, the powder, does it, is there an obvious change? Like, can you tell, like, is there a color change? Is there, I don't know, some, is something like letting you know that something's changed at all? There's no visible change, but there is a change in mass, of course, mm. because uh, it takes up this empty space. You now it's filled with the gas, which, of course, has weight. Uh, but uh, some materials, although not very few, show some optical changes. But most of the time, this is uh, relatively, uh, it's a difference that has to be detected through some more sophisticated means. And what are those sophisticated means? Because um, I don't know. <laughs> well, why would we measuring measuring this this balance, uh, measuring the weight? Um, mm. And so this would do something known as thermogrammetric uh, thermogrammetric analysis, uh, where we have a very sensitive balance, and uh, and that balance holds our powder. And then as we pass the gas through that balance, 
we see the ma mass of powder increase and we can quantify by how much it's increasing. And now, what is, that, we can real quick about that. What's like the apparatus? Is this like, like, are we talking about like a scale, like on the bench top or like, is this a certain instrument you got to like put this powder into like a box? You know what I mean? Well, in effect, this is, you know, the, the, the heart of this instrument is just a very sensitive balance. Mm. But of course, it is connected to uh, to a gas stream. It's connected to a computer so you can analyze all of this. And it costs, you know, $40,000. So it's it 15 times more expensive than an actual balance. Uh, but in fact, it's a balance that you can heat, that you can pass gas through, and that you can very finely monitor these changes in mass that's associated with that. That's crazy. Uh, and this is used a lot to see how the materials behave when exposed to gases or when exposed to, to increasing temperature to see how the materials decay as they as they're heated. Mm. So this now, is what... a relatively standard method. This, you know, it's uh it's not, not everyday, but a lot of people will do this in, in labs. So this is pretty commonly used. Yeah, it's just, but even for me though, like I, like, cause I don't, you know, I obviously don't, I don't really work with frameworks and like, um, right. th this, this gas capture. So to me, like, what is the, what, like on average, if you're just, if I'm just someone in the lab working on this, like what, what is the, what's the mass difference? Like, is there like how much, like. Well, that depends on the material, but for example, we have developed some of the materials that, uh, will capture some fluorinated gases mm. to the tune of 220% by weight. So you have like a gram of your material. It will capture almost two and a half grams of a gas. Two and a half grams of gas? Yes. That is crazy. So, so yes, it stores, it can store, and, it, and ours are not record folders anyway. So you can you have these materials which will store five, six, or more times by weight of gas than their own weight. That's crazy. That's really cool. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Trying to think, uh, what are the some so like what are some of the other methods then to like how do you like prove like okay we've captured this this gas? Well, sometimes if you're lucky, uh, the gas will be strongly enough captured that we can detect it by crystallography. So mm. we can take the crystal structure, we will see our framework, and then uh, well ordered within the framework, we'll see a molecule of of CO two or or something else. Um, this doesn't happen often because uh, many times the gas just kind of tumbles around and it's not very ordered. Um, but uh, in case it does happen, then you're pretty lucky. So you nice. Well, Professor Milianic, I want to thank you so much for uh, coming on today. I uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, really having a good conversation today. And uh, is there anything else that you know? Uh, any advice that you want to give to those? Uh, Anyone, any prospective graduate students um, or just, you know, chemistry students in general? Um, well, to prospective graduate students, I think I would suggest that they, you know, they should um, explore their options and sort of, uh, you know, cast a wide net and see, uh, let's see where it takes them. Mm. Uh, and that they should, again, not uh, underestimate, uh, that they should view this uh, the the, the, PhD, the graduate school has as kind of a holistic experience and not just the research experience and sort of try to balance their personal lives, their interactions with their colleagues, which many of them will become very good friends, lifelong friends, with also sort of 
uh, more rigorous uh, academic uh, importance of what they're doing, uh, future employability and so on. And sort of because these are not, um, the PhD is not only the uh, the most, uh, the time when you deal with science most intensively in your life. Mm. But it's also that for many people, it's just the best years of their life. You know, typically you will, you're in your 20s, you're young, you know, your world, you're young, strong and beautiful. And so <laughs> you should, uh, uh, right, you always your oyster and you shouldn't really, um, uh, you should enjoy this in, uh, in as many ways as possible, not just professional. Um and then for, for the current PhD students, I think uh, looking towards their future, I, I, my advice would also be to sort of explore things uh, as broadly as they can. If they're thinking of a postdoc, go to a postdoc in a different country on, on, uh, on working on a topic you've never, uh, you're interested in, but you've never done with, dealt with, uh, and, um, and something great will come out of that. Mm. Um, but again, sort of this, you know, casting a wide net, uh, not specializing too early. I think that's that's advice that I like to think I, I followed, uh, and, um, and I, I I think I enjoy the outcomes of that. So yeah, suggest it to other people too. Well, thank you for your time and consideration. And uh, well, guys, we'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>